Happy New Year, church family. It's uh, my privilege to bring you the first sermon of 2021, a year whose motto should be called, well, at least it can't get any worse, can it? <laughs> With the start of a new year comes the end of a two-week mini-series that we are doing, talking about arrival. As we moved from the season of Advent, now that we've celebrated Christ's birth, how shall we live as the people of God knowing that Jesus has arrived? And so uh, we've talked about last week how Jesus' arrival changes everything, right? We talked about how Jesus' arrival brings danger to our sinful hearts and calls us to live dangerously in worship for him, right? Uh, on Christmas Eve service, um, Pastor Craig reminded us of Simeon and this righteous and devout man who was waiting in the temple for Christ to come and how the arrival for Jesus fulfilled the purpose of his life. And this week, we, we turn to a different character in Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is a character that, for the most part, I don't think many people have heard a sermon on. Uh, her name is Anna. Now, sadly, Anna gets very little love around this time of year, uh, but I want to take some time to break down these verses on Anna and how Jesus' arrival changes everything. So we will do this, and we'll do this in just in three verses. So let's turn, tap, swipe, swipe our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Read this passage with me, but most importantly, hide these words in your heart as the Holy Spirit guides you. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, uh, may the reality of our lives be better than all of our worldly expectations. May your truth speak to us today, and may your spirit guide us to pierce our hearts with these words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like for all of you to time travel with me a little bit this morning. Do you remember the beginning of 2020? All the expectations and hopes, everything that we thought that we would accomplish and, and dream of, right? Everyone was posting and tweeting hashtag 2020 vision. Hashtag, right? This is going to be my year. And what did we arrive one year later? What are all the posts and tweets saying right now? Hashtag hindsight 2020. <laughs> Hashtag worst year ever. Hashtag thank the Lord it is over 2020. How is it? Have you ever thought about this? How is it that our expectations and realities are often so far apart. You know, one video that I saw this week, I think, captured the year that was. Um, the tech company, Google, released its annual recap video called The Year in Search. 
where it tries to condense everything that the world searched for in, in, in the entire year. And this, this video has is, is exploded over the last several weeks. It's gotten like 243 million views. Um, you know, for, for a tech company that is popular for its exact algorithmic precision, engineering mastery, and sort of app-driven logic, the video takes much more of a philosophical and, dare I say, spiritual tone. It starts with this following quote, and I'm going to read this to you. The most human trait is to want to know why. In a year where everyone was tested around the world, why was searched more than ever. See, I find this fascinating because it speaks to something about the fallen world that we live in. When expectations aren't met and, and sort of the reality sets in, we ask why. We begin to doubt ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings. We, we start wondering whether or not we've lived up to the expectations of others, whether or not failure is going to be the reality of our lives. Our text today is about a woman named Anna that Luke is trying to help us understand about the life that was expected versus the life of reality. That even if we have unrealistic expectations, even when reality hits us in ways that we cannot expect, God's purposes for Anna and for us give life powerful meaning because Jesus has arrived. That actually God's reality for her life is, is actually better than anything that she could have expected. So how does Luke do this? Let's take a look at the text and just see uh, just two points that I want to make in this sermon. So the first point is, what would we have expected from Anna's life? And two, what God's reality was for Anna's life. So what we, we expected from Anna's life and what God's reality was for in Anna's life. So let's start with what we would have expected from Anna's life. What do we know about her? What does the text say? Well, we know that her name is Anna. Anna is the Greek name meaning grace. So right off the bat, she grew up with an expectation of living out a name that is both a noun and a verb. Very dangerous. You ever met someone who was named this way and instantly you kind of are expecting things out of their life? Like if you named your baby Princeton, for example, right? There's, there's a lot of expectations there. Or miracle or harmony, right? Anna from birth had the expectation to be grace. And not only grace, but the Hebrew name for Anna was Hannah from the Old Testament. They're one and the same. So not only is Anna named Grace, she's named after a famous person in Scripture. It's this kind of pressure that comes with that. So we as a reader in Luke's day, we know our Old Testament. We're going to start making comparisons to the faith of Hannah, who birthed Samuel the prophet, right, the priest. High expectations. You're going to be named Hannah? All right, you better start praying day and night, girl, right? Giving away your children to be priests, right? This is the expectation we have for your life. Anna, from the jump of just Luke's description of her name, is inviting assumptions about the life she's going to live. But not only that, we learn that she is a prophetess. Now, prophetess in the Old Testament were women of extremely bold and courageous character and high status and position. Think Deborah, think Miriam, think Huldah, all of them, outspoken, bold, not afraid to talk powerfully and put people in their place. 
Now, these weren't the kind of prophets or prophetesses who had the revelation of the word of God. This wasn't prophets or prophetesses that, that had new revelation that could be written down as scripture. But these prophetesses were more in line of teachers and communicators of God's word. So these were women who would sing songs and instruct people. These were women who could strike fear with their proclamations and were endowed with the spirit of the Lord upon them, just like Simeon was. In other words, to be a prophetess is to be this idea that revolution is standing on your shoulders. Not only that expectation, but we see here in verse 36 that she is of the tribe of Asher. Meaning that she and her family are so faithfully committed to their faith in Judaism that she's able to trace her lineage to the, one of the original tribes of Jerusalem. This is, this is important. This is significant. Why? Because we are at an age in biblical history where religious backsliding led to all sorts of ungodly pagan marriages. There was a lot where people didn't even know where, what tribe they were from anymore. The people of God had become so far away from who God was that you couldn't trace to where you were from or, or who you had family that you lived in. But Anna's family had a line of faithfulness that could be traced all the way back to the start of God's people, the covenant promises of God. And anyone that has a family name that you had to live up to knows this reality, right? The weight of those expectations. Now imagine if your family lineage was one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. Right? It's like being the son of Michael Jordan and you're playing basketball. Okay? Can you imagine the kind of pressure that this, is, this life would be? And if all of that expectation was enough, we have an external expectation as readers of Luke's gospel. What do I mean by this? You see, Luke is a historian writing a woman down as the focal character in the narrative. Now, don't miss this. Especially in, 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 in narratives of that age and day, right? Whenever you have a woman as the main character in the story, you know something huge is about to go down, right? This was a, a society that was dominated by the patriarchy. So when, when a woman comes into the play, when, when, when a woman comes into the story, it's going to be important, this is going to be significant. Think Ruth. Think Esther. Think, think Abigail. Think Mary. All right, when a woman of the Lord comes into the story to take over, something is going to go down, and God's about to receive all the glory in the most spectacular of ways. Right? The theologian and Reformed Presbyterian uh, Amy Bird calls these moments in Scripture probably one of the most interesting theological terms. She calls these gynocentric interruptions, which I think is just a, an interesting phrase in Scripture. Moments when... A woman enters the story, and it's supposed to grab your attention. The reader is expecting something new, something amazing and wonderful, something dramatic from Anna, this woman called Grace, this woman who's a prophetess, this woman from the tribe of Asher who blows everyone away and lives this dominating, interesting, dynamic lifestyle filled with wonder. Now, who does this remind you of? Maybe you have someone in mind when you think of this. Uh, for me, I, I think of my mom because I'm a self-proclaimed mama's boy, right, who, who always thinks that his mom is a superhero. Um, but who does this remind you of? Maybe you can think of someone in your life, but I would argue actually that Luke has a specific person in mind when he's setting up all of these expectations about Anna. And that someone is a woman that you may not have heard of. Uh, it's a woman named Judith. 
Now, maybe you have heard about the book of Judith, but for those who haven't, let me tell you a little bit about her. Judith was like a combination of like Princess Leia, Katniss Everdeen, the Black Widow, Elizabeth Bennet, Mulan, and Aretha Franklin, like all rolled up in like one person, okay? Right? The legend is that she was a widow in her young age when the evil Assyrian army put all of Israel into fear and trembling. But Judith, oh Judith, she was not scared. She proceeded to divide a plan which involved dressing up in such royal splendor that the king was excited to bring her into his most private courts and then proceeded to spy her way into getting the king passed out from drinking and then executed him in the name of the Lord, becoming the salvation for Israel, getting courted by every man in Israel, but she doesn't need no man. So she remains a faithful widow all the days of her life and lives to the tender age of 105. And a number that, by the way, we're going to get back to later in this sermon, but she lives to 105, and all her years, Israel knows nothing but peace and prosperity, right? right? To put in contemporary words, like, you go, girl, right? Wonder Woman in the year of 198 BC, right? This was the story of Judith. Everyone in Luke's era was aware of Judith's story, and her story, while it's questionable as history, and this is why we don't treat her story as in the Apocrypha as the Word of God. Um, but even her story was so famous, by the way, that, that Protestant reformers Calvin and Luther all paid their respects to the story, saying that this is good fan fiction. This is a good read. This is something that Christians should, should look at as, as a godly example. Generations that followed 200 years before the birth of Christ would have known that any woman's story was going to be compared to the Judith story. All right? All other women's stories would be compared to hers. And Luke is keenly aware of this expectation because the Judith narrative is a story that is passed down from generation to generation. Families would have known this. So again, this prophetess Anna of the tribe of Asher, this respected widow, does she live up to this sort of exciting, dynamic Judith kind of life? Like Hannah, like Miriam or Deborah. One could argue, not even close. What does Luke do to sweep the rug from underneath us? If you look at these verses, Anna's life faces great tragedy when she turns just 21 years old. Seven years after it was customary for her to have been married. Our text today tells us that she became a widow at that age. And she never remarried, even though it might have been expected for her to do so. Now why she doesn't remarry? Well... Perhaps it means that she wasn't wealthy or in a position of power. Otherwise, suitors would have been lining up for her. Perhaps it, it meant that she wasn't a political or social influence. So it means that she bore no significance to the powers that be. Whatever it might have been, rather than this sort of Judith life, she just commits to a life in the temple. Spending her days, not in wild adventure and drama like her predecessors, but instead making a quiet, humble living near the temple grounds, doing the small tasks and work of getting ready for worship, then worshiping, and then spending the small tasks of cleaning up afterwards. She was living in a world where Judaism was fading away in the culture. People were more interested in the Roman gods, and, and true devotion was hard to come by. And the text tells us, and this should be the thing that, that maybe crushes us a little bit, the text tells us that this was the pattern of her life for 84 years. 
How does this change your perceptions and expectations of her? Think about this. Every year she remained a widow, serving in the temple. In the eyes of society, how ordinary, how unremarkable her life had become. How many of you would look at her situation and think to yourself, you know, I, I don't think that's how I would have expected her life to go. I, maybe if you're even more bold and honest, you would say, you know, I don't think I would want to live that life. Some of you might even say, I think that anyone who would want to live a life like that is probably someone without ambition. That's kind of a wasted life. You know, the world, our own sinful thoughts, right, the devil, they sort of love screaming this message to us, don't they? That life is only significant if you hold the status and position and honor that others deem credible. It's ego, like we talked about last week. It's false religion. And we all go through this. These thoughts creep into us, even those who serve Christ in the church, that our expectations for how our Christian lives are going to go is what we should rest our hope in. Um, let me see if I can, I can do a quick demonstration to show this. Um, all right, quick poll in this room, uh, just by show of hands. Uh, or, you, know, you can just agree with me in your head if you don't want to embarrass yourself. Um, how many of you here have ever led a Bible study of any kind, nursery, children's ministry, right, adults, right, or college students. Okay, wow, okay, that's, that's a lot of you, but this is great. When this pandemic is over, we're going to recruit all of you for a quip hour. Okay, but anyways, um, okay, but that's, that's not the point. All right, okay, so um, keep your hands up. Okay, now, how many of you, as you were getting ready to teach that Bible study or lesson, right, in your head, you were thinking, about all these grand expectations of how God was going to use your Bible study to lead mass revival. All right? I can see by some of you that are smiling underneath your mask, right? right? How many of you in your head, right, you were expecting sort of these David Platt levels of weeping and repentance and joy as you were, to, you were about to teach that lesson? And then what happens, right? Blank stares, awkward silences, People not sharing vulnerably, right? And then you kind of go home and you're going, ah, I didn't, didn't think that was going to go the way I thought it was going to go, right? What happened? Sometimes I think we live out our lives as a delusion. We want the Christian life to be a life where sort of every single friend and family member is saved. We bat about 100% on every person that we evangelize to. We get married to that perfect Christian spouse. We raise perfect, obedient, hardworking children who love to be in church and sit quietly and, and never go to the bathroom during the, the pastor's sermon, right? We, we, we love, you know, the idea of this every prayer, every worship, every sermon is going to make us just, just delight. And, 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 and we live in our God just all the days, and we make about $3 million a year, and Jesus is standing over our shoulder and patting us on the back in approval, right? This is sort of the expectation we give ourselves. And, and when the reality of living a Christian life sets in, we begin to ask suddenly the question that Google asks, why? Why am I living for Jesus and it seems like things look so ordinary? Does Jesus' arrival in my life really change anything? We are not immune to these sinful thoughts that tell us that our lives are meaningless when they don't reach the expectations of ourselves and others. 
In fact, sometimes our piety and pursuit of holiness can sometimes drown us into a greater despair because it becomes about us. It becomes about us keeping the wheel, the wheel spinning rather than focusing on who is really keeping the wheel spinning in the first place. So here we are, looking at Anna. And in our sinful mindset, it would seem as though Anna has not lived up to expectations. But what if we were to look at her life differently? What if we were to take another hard look at her life in the lens of God's reality? When we look at her life story as one who spent a lifetime living God's reality, awaiting the arrival of Jesus, when you start doing that, suddenly things begin to click together and you begin to see that Jesus' arrival brings about the better reality for her life. The better reality. And this better reality changes everything. It changes everything for Anna. It changes everything for you and me in three ways that we'll see in this text here. So three things to think about when we think about this text in light of God's better reality. Here's the first. Number one, it gives extraordinary purposes to ordinary procedures. It gives extraordinary purposes to ordinary procedures. See, instead of seeing an obscure sort of failed prophetess who spent a lifetime with nothing to show for it, she uses her lifetime of service in the temple to demonstrate the faithfulness of God in an honorably long-lived piety. Daily devotions in the temple, serving and helping to facilitate worship, you know, folding bulletins, cleaning and sweeping floors, changing the batteries and the lights, right? Doing it again and again. She does these things so faithfully that everyone begins to see the dignity of her long, faithful work and journey. You see, this is an era of biblical history where experience and age were seen as strengths, not flaws, Her age and length of service would have propelled her to have instant credibility towards others to love, towards others, and the love that she had for others. And her credibility would would lead to this extraordinary God. It would would serve as this glory to an extraordinary God that she worshiped and fasted and prayed to. You see, in the ordinary rhythms that she lived year to year to year, you would be preparing her and preparing others to be able to recognize and worship Jesus. The culmination of a life's work is that she gets to see Jesus and meet him face to face. And more importantly than that, she knows who this baby is and what this baby will do as a savior because she has spent a lifetime knowing enough about the salvation that is to come that she has prepared herself to see him. She has read Isaiah. She has read the Psalms. She knows the fulfillment of the prophet spoke of would be in Christ. She is ready for the arrival of Jesus because the ordinary procedures of her life has prepared her to know him intimately when he comes. In other words, it is these ordinary moments where God is working in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. You know, this is, uh, by the way, constant throughout the research that has been done on individuals who are reflecting on their own lives or the loss of a loved one or, or the loss of an experience that has devi- defined their existence. Um, many of you might be familiar with uh, Dr. Brene Brown. Uh, she is one of the leading res- researchers on shame and vulnerability. And she noticed this in a study where she researched on a reflection on one's life. 
She asked a question to her subjects about, you know, what do you miss the most in life? Or what do you miss the most on, on, on uh, you know, people leave your life or experience have left your life? What do, you, what do you miss the most? And overwhelmingly, the research said that when people take a look back on their lives and think about what they miss the most, it's, it's not the extravagant, spectacular, big highlight reel moments that, that they miss. What they miss most are the ordinary things. Empty nesters would say things like, you know, I would just do anything to hear my children running up upstairs again. People who have lost a loved one, they'd say, you know, I would just give my whole world if I could just get a text message that simply just said, hey. It's congregation members during this pandemic who, who kept on saying to us as staff, you know, like, I would do anything just to hear congregational singing again. We take these things for granted, and we don't know how formative these ordinary procedures in our lives are to, to help us to see clearly the extraordinary grace of God working in and through us. And it's amazing to see that modern research is confirming what we as Christians already know, that, that God moves not in the flashes of lightning and the miraculous and the, the emotional and the spectacular, but that he moves in the still, small voice. The ordinary church service on a Sunday morning. The messy devotionals that you have at home with your family. The times where you're just tired in community group. He's working in all of those ordinary things. Friends, if there's anything that we can learn from this today, is that to not set aside those everyday rhythms of life that bring worship and praise to the Lord. Live in worship because Christ's justifying work for you is, is you recognizing what Jesus has done rather than you trying to save yourself. Rest in his goodness. Rest in his grace. Sabbath and know in these ordinary procedures of grace, you will come to realize how extraordinary these things are in a world that believes being overworked and overscheduled and exhausted is ordinary. What else do we see? Second point. God's reality of Anna's life, second point, is that it gives significance to the suffering. It gives significance to the suffering. You know, um, for Anna, the loneliness that accompanies the unexpected loss of a spouse, you know, the pain of, of being undesirable, Living single in a world that values and idolizes marriage and family. These are all realities that Anna surely must have faced. But the pain that she faced from these things are not hindrances. They're not character flaws to her reputation. They are badges of honor that serve as a witness of faithfulness and steadfastness to this temple community. Her daily worship in the face of tremendous loss gives only greater glory to the testimony and steadfast love of the Lord. Her loneliness as a single isn't suffering without meaning. It's there to show the sufficiency of the gospel and the good news that God is enough. Her sufferings would be a foreshadowing of the sufferings of Christ. The Christ that would fast 40 days in the wilderness. The one who would feel the sting of loneliness when all whom he loved would betray him. The one who would destroy the temple 
and rebuild it in three days. The one who bore our sufferings and shame due to sin and take it upon himself on the cross so that he could be raised on the third day to bring salvation and life to those who would believe in his name. It was the humiliations and the sufferings of Jesus that led to his highest honor and glory. And by the way, I don't know if you caught this, but we as Christians believe that Jesus lived the perfectly lived life. You see? It's the humiliations and sufferings of Anna that pointed others to know Christ because they would know his sufferings. One of the things that we're finding out about this period of time that we're living in now is despite that our Instagrams, which talk about the importance of you know, vulnerability and authenticity, is that our mental health crisis is, is far much worse than we could have imagined. That people have been trying to, to self-medicate for too long, to find purpose in their life, because we all of a sudden came to the starking reality that our names and our titles weren't enough. The suffering almost feels pointless and arbitrary and meaningless because, after all, if, if, if you're one of those who, who claim to be an atheist, if there is no objective reason behind suffering and no point to pain, then it really doesn't make sense to find objective meaning in this world, does it? But the Christian hope for us brings great perspective and purpose of God's reality behind suffering. I love this quote from the preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of the, the most renowned pastors in England. He, he suffered with depression his entire life. He, he writes this about suffering and significance in suffering. Depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, the John the Baptist, heralding the nearer coming of my Lord. What we can learn is this. If you are here today and you are trying to make sense of your life and the meaningless nature of the suffering that you have faced, it's your pain that is a catalyst for Christ to come in and receive great glory and power in your life. It's your suffering that will be a witness to believers and give strength to them, to non-believers, to make them wonder why you have hope, to the world that believes that a name and title is, is, is enough, and you're saying, no, your suffering is, is good because Christ is worthy. It will help us to see the greatness of our need for Jesus more, to invade the longings of our heart. And it's, it's one of those poetic paradoxes of the gospel. Pain that leads to resilience. Longing that leads to fulfillment. Suffering that leads to glory. The shame of Christ so that he could take the shame for us and be glorified and exalted. So we, looking to Christ like Anna does, worshiping God like Anna does, embrace the pain that we have lived. Because you can't have a hope in Jesus' arrival if you don't have a despair that Jesus can fill. So let your suffering be filled with the Savior's promise to know that it serves as a daily testimony of his grace and encouragement to those of, here, of us here. Finally, the last thing that we can take away is this. That God's reality is greater than anything that we could ever expect of our lives. God's reality is greater than anything that we could ever expect of our lives. 
Do you know why uh, Luke's gospel is so fascinating? If you ever read the book of Luke, you will know that he often writes about peoples with names and titles that goes against the grain of all your expectations. Right? Rather than the respected, dignified, honorable people understanding Jesus, it's tax collectors. It's the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion, all kinds of people with various types of diseases, lepers, and even disciples who denied him three times. You see, Luke isn't about fulfilling your societal expectations for what you see, because he wants you to see something deeper about the characters and what is expected of them. He wants you to look beyond their names and their titles and find something beautiful in the way that they live and the way that they respond to Christ. He wants you to show you the grace of God working in this world to all kinds of people you might not expect. Gentiles, the poor, the insignificant, the orphan, the widow. That that the mercy and grace of Christ is powerful enough for all who live and all who call upon his name, no matter what you have lived or have not lived up to. God's reality is always better than what we expect. Whether you're the optimist that believes everything is always going to work out or you're the pessimist dream killer who finds problem and everything pleasant, God's reality is better than your greatest dreams or your most fearful nightmares. And the reality of Anna's life is, is so much better than our expectations as readers. Is so much better. In Luke's gospel, she is the last person to witness and see the infant Jesus. Her life is the end note of Jesus' infancy. This faithful woman who suffered and endured for this glimpse of Christ. This woman who was aging in frail body, seemingly unextraordinary life, leads to the extraordinary revelation of her seeing the Savior being born and being presented at the temple where she resided. And her joy is palpable, isn't it? She's speaking the news to anyone that she could find. Her joy cannot be contained as she was telling people, do you know that everything that we have waited for has arrived? Jesus is alive. Jesus is here. The consolation of Israel that we have waited for has come. Hope is here. Love is here. Jesus is here. As we were saying in our Advent. And you know, it's because of this wonderful reality that we see in Anna's life. Is that I believe Luke is setting up this conclusion to say something very poignant. That Anna's life and God's reality was actually the better version of all of these women that we expected her to be. Now, why do I believe this? Scholars who have been studying this passage notice a detail here that is often overlooked, and that is Anna's age. They argue that a correct translation of verse 37 in our text here today is that Anna was a widow for 84 years, not that she was 84. Meaning that if she was married... At the age of 14, married for seven years, became a widow at 21. Let's do the math. 84 plus 21 is 105. And scholars can't seem to shake this weird correlation with this number 105 and what Luke is expecting their readers to understand. You see, this is the exact same age that Judith of legend lived up to. The widow Judith, who lost her husband at a young age, who never remarried, who fasted and prayed and gave glory to God, who lived this sort of glorious, legendary life and lifestyle, lived to be 105 years old. And this fact isn't a coincidence of those who, in the minds of those who study Scripture. And suddenly, 
The comparison that Luke is making is saying something worth a good scholarly speculation about. So let's, let's speculate together. Here's my speculation. What if Luke, in making all of these connections to powerful, strong, legendary women of God, is saying that the real heroic life is not to be found in the legendary retelling of Jewish past or the fantasy stories that glorify the bold and bombastic life. But what if Luke is saying that the real heroic life is found in living in God's reality? I find this incredibly compelling. To me, this lines up perfectly with why we have Simeon and why we have the shepherds that see the baby Jesus in Luke's gospel. Why, by the way, God calls people like you and I to himself. It's those who seemingly have the most mundane, undistinguished, ordinary lives that speak the greatest testimony of God's reality working in and through them. It would almost be as though Luke is saying here with Anna, that as those who carry on in the ordinary means of grace get to see Jesus in a way that no one else will. That you don't need a dramatic testimony or a dramatic career change or a glorified skill set or an emotional spiritual high to encounter the joys of living in God's reality. That true intimacy with God, a true model of this life well lived is being right where you are called to be. That your life is precious. It is filled with meaning and joy and purpose, that you have worth in the kingdom of God, no matter what your title is or how high your occupation rank is or how high your productivity is, because the very testimony of your everyday life means that you are closer to the heart of Jesus than any celebrity pastor could ever be. Your life is a great testimony of Jesus' arrival, simply by you faithfully waking up each morning Loving your messy life and your messy job and just witnessing the grace of Christ in you. Your every day is a gospel story and a testimony to the unexpected life that Jesus lived. Do you remember Jesus' unexpected life? Instead of being born in a kingdom's palace, he was arrived in a manger. Instead of a life filled with parade and splendor, Jesus comes riding as a king on a donkey, instead of being born of royalty in a city center, he is born to a carpenter in Nazareth. Instead of inaugurating the kingdom with an army and angels and a golden throne, he trades it all for a criminal's cross, a man of sorrows, and a crown of thorns. Instead of millions of followers, Jesus chooses 12 nobodies to walk with him in a seemingly random path that leads to his death. Instead of the riches of the world to claim as his own, Jesus gives up his rights and did not equate equality with God, something to be grasped, but in reality lived this perfect life, this unexpected life, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. You see, God's reality is greater than any expectation we have for ourselves, and Jesus' arrival is the testimony of that. So, Jesus is the better Anna who is the better Judith. In this seemingly unremarkable life, we find the greatness of God. We find a Messiah, the hope of the world, and he is calling you to live this better reality until he comes again. 
what reality will you live in today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story of Anna, Lord, a story that subverts all, that we might expect our hope and instead sees the deeper truth of the reality of Christ, of the life well lived, an answer to the question of why. Father, may we, by your grace, by your spirit, choose today to live life of purpose and meaning and significance, not our own expectations, but in the ordinary ways that you have called us day by day by day. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray.